Let's pray together. God, this morning, I want to first of all just uh, lift up another church in our community. I want to pray for Faith Outreach Church, realizing uh, it's the first time we, I think we've ever prayed for Faith Outreach. Lord, I want to thank you for Rance Moore, uh, for his ministry, longtime ministry to Greenville. Uh, uh, Lord, I just uh, am thankful for the part that they play in the life of Greenville and uh, so many folks um, over around the YMCA area. Just thankful for their uh, burden for connecting to those who aren't part of a people and their burden for uh, proclaiming Christ. Lord, we just ask you to bless the ministry of Faith Outreach this morning. We ask you to, I ask you to, bl- to bless Rance, Lord. I uh, ask you to bless him personally as he's uh, preparing to teach and preach each week and as he's going about uh, just life as a, a worshiper in Greenville in addition to a pastor at uh, Faith Outreach, just entrusting him to you, Lord entrusting faith outreach to you and asking you to bless uh, their ministry for your glory. Lord, also we want to lift up little Trevor this morning. He's burdened for uh, how he's feeling and how the Daniels family is uh, going through this season. We just want to entrust them to you and ask you to sustain them. Uh, We pray for just small uh, but really big things like an appetite. Uh, Pray that you would give Trevor a a desire to eat some and to... uh, to feel better as he eats, to where he can get up and be a little active. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you would watch over his body. We uh, are thankful for good medicine through children's and good care. Uh, But more than that, we recognize that you are the healer and we entrust uh, his health to you and entrust this family to you. Lord, also this morning, I pray for how we spend these next few minutes, Lord, that you and your ways will be on display. Lord, I pray that we together will find some comfort in how you moved with Job uh, that will will translate to how you move with us. Uh, uh, I just turn this time over to you in Christ's name. Amen. You can turn to the book of Job. We'll be in really two books this morning, Job, uh, Job chapter 2, and Genesis chapters uh, 1 and 2 primarily. I'd like to establish something right up front at the beginning of this sermon um, it's, it's laurel. Okay, I want everybody to understand it's laurel. And if you're hearing anything other than that, I, we're going to pray for you. Um, and, and the dress is gold and white also, just letting you know. If you're seeing anything else than, other than that, then we're, we'll pray for you as well and hope that you can come to know the Lord. Um, obviously, I'm joking and being facetious there. I think what is so fascinating about this whole Laurel and Yanny thing is that we're sitting around an iPhone or a computer screen hearing what we know to be the exact same data that's coming out of this machine, the device, yet people are hearing something completely different. It's just bizarre. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, then don't Google it now. If we hear anybody in the room go, Laurel, we'll know that somebody did it now. Don't do it now, but do it maybe after worship this morning. I think it's pretty fascinating that we can hear two completely different things from one piece of information. One of the things I've been thinking about in our Job series is hoping that we hear the same information from struggles and sufferings and difficulty. I think there's a potential for us to hear, uh, to respond to difficulties and struggling and suffering with, man, I got to run a bad luck. And who can I blame? That's one way of hearing that information. Another way of hearing that information would be to trust the God 
that is sovereign over those details and trust that he either allowed them or ordained them and that he's purposeful and intentional and loving and good. It's a very different way of hearing the same piece of information. What I'm hoping is that our time this morning and our time in this series in the book of Job, that we will together hear the same thing, that we will hear a God that's good behind the details. This is a book about what it means to be a son of God. That's not gender specific. We're just using the language of the book. This is a book about sonship. The word son is all over the book. It's a book about what it means to be a son of God. And it's also a book about a man that's worth modeling. Job is a guy that we should and could want to model our lives after. But I think better than that, better than all of that, it's about a God worth knowing. So we see the God behind this story and we see how he's moving and we see what he's up to. We realize he is a God worth knowing and understanding our God and understanding his wonderful and often misunderstood work in this book of Job will give us a wisdom, a wisdom that will travel into our circumstances. I've been hoping and praying along the lines that the Holy Spirit would help us all see the same thing in this book and then that we would be able to interpret our circumstances in a way that would bring him glory. We're going to work our way through chapter 2 this morning in three pieces. Okay, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6, and then verses 7 and 8, and then 9 and 10. And just those pieces, sort of unpacking them. Uh, the plan for the morning is to just lightly unpack those verses, just to see what's going on there. And then I want us to just uh, uh, see if we can make sense of Job. It's a way to sort of interpret Job, and then a way to sort of interpret God's movements. And then we'll see where we land at that point. Okay, so let's move into this passage in chapter 2 of Job. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life." The second chapter in some ways mirrors the first chapter, and you're going to see Satan doing the same thing he did in chapter 1. We gave it a sort of a phrase, a parking place to see what he's doing. Satan was doing what he did in chapter 1, and he's doing what he does in chapter 2 as well. He is about the work of accusing, and specifically his accusation is in verses 4 and 5. Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone in his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Again, Satan is saying that Job is a big hypocrite, and he doesn't really love you, God. He's really in it for the loot. He's in it for the goods, and he's in it now, Satan is saying, for the personal protection to his person and his health. You take away his health, and you'll see, God, he's going to curse you. To your face. Satan is doing what Satan does. And God is doing what God does. 
The same things we saw from God in the first chapter, we see here in the second chapter. Look at verses 3 and 6. In verse 3, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. We considered in the first chapter sort of this alarming image that God sort of served up Job on a platter. And they see the same thing here in chapter 2 where he serves him up and then he gives Satan permission to really have his way with him. He gives him some boundaries, but a very limited boundary. In verse 6, he says, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. God is doing what he does, and Satan is doing what he does. We could also introduce the thought that Job here is doing what he does. Job held fast to his integrity in chapter 1. He didn't do what Satan said he would do. He didn't curse God to his face when he lost all his stuff and he lost all his family. And here in chapter 2, we can see that Job is still doing what he does. God said of Job, he is holding fast. He still holds fast to his integrity. That word integrity is a form of the word that was used about Job of being blameless and without blemish. In some ways, you could apply that word to say he still holds fast to his innocence. Hey, the guy is not sinless. There's nothing in this book that says that Job is sinless. That would be alarming. We might try to figure out how to reconcile that with the rest of the book that says all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But we can hold to the notion that he is, in fact, innocent in the regards to the details that are unfolding in his life. He is innocent in regards to the catastrophes that are cascading upon his life, one right after another. That they're not somehow connected to some sin in his life that he needs to repent from. So he still holds fast to his integrity. That's a posture you're going to enjoy seeing from Job for the rest of the book. And you'll understand why as we move forward. Now, let's look at verses 7 and 8. That sort of acquaints us with the main, character, main, main characters here, Satan, God, and Job. Let's look at verses 7 and 8 and see what we can find there. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord now with permission to do all he wants just as long as he doesn't kill Job. And he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. All right, the catastrophes from chapter 1 continue into chapter 2. Okay, these cascading is the language we've used, catastrophes. First of all here we see in this passage, loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. These are the same types of sores that were part of the sixth plague on Egypt where the sores covered all the Egyptians. It's the same type of sore, only one of which threatened to take the life of King Hezekiah. These are magnum sores. These are serious sores. These aren't bobos. These are serious, life-threatening sores. Some of the things that we can consider just in seeing him being inflicted with these sores is we might look at that through the lens of Leviticus and realize this guy's been rendered unclean. He's been rendered unclean through no fault of his own. Okay, we look at his life and we, or we look at his person and we look at him and say, man, this guy must be guilty if we're looking through the lens of Leviticus. a very limited view. He looks guilty because he's covered 
with these sores. He must be unclean. He's also been inflicted with the curses of covenant breaking. Deuteronomy chapter 28 presents the picture of covenant blessings for adhering to God's old covenant. And then covenant curses for not following God in the covenant. And he looks like, with these covered with sores, the, the promise of curses there, the threat really of curses, it looks like he's a covenant breaker. He looks like someone who has fallen under judgment for sin. And at this point, I, I, I can't remember who I've heard say this over the years, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. And at this point, his friends that we're going to meet here in these next few weeks, they think he's a duck. And they're saying as much. You must be guilty. You must be unclean. You must be a covenant breaker because you're showing all the signs of being that. You look like a duck. You're quacking like a duck. The problem is these guys are foolish. His friends are foolish. Wisdom says that things are not always as they seem. He may not be a duck. He might just be a dude in a duck suit, an innocent dude at that. And we have, through this wonderful book, a view into the divine counsel so that we know exactly what's going on behind the scenes. And we know that he is, in fact, holding fast to his integrity because he is, in fact, in regards to these catastrophes, innocent. Remember, we poked our head up into the divine counsel like giraffes. We're able to look around and hear the details of these two meetings, the two divine counsels, and realize even God said he still holds fast to his Integrity. You incited me against him for no good reason. This guy truly is innocent, though he sure doesn't look it. And his response to these boils, I, I'm trying to think about it. He's scraping them with pot, uh, shards of pottery. Uh, I've, I've had poison ivy so bad. I know a lot of folks in the room can relate to this, likely, of having poison ivy so bad at times where the itch is so bad that you really don't care if you're going to be disfigured for life. <laughs> People are saying, don't scratch it, don't scratch it. And you're like, man, I, I got to have some sort of relief, so I'm just going to scratch this thing until I'll be scarred for life, but I really don't care because I'll likely feel better than I feel right now. I'm just imagining how bad it must have felt for him to scrape himself with shards of pottery. And we find his posture now sitting in ashes. He's fallen to the earth. He's sitting in the ruins of inconceivable loss and inconceivable pain. He's sitting in what amounts to, at this point, with his life, in the middle of a big altar where he's been sacrificed and he's lost everything. He's been sliced and diced. He's been burned up and here he sits. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 and see what happens next. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his Lips. I, I would appreciate the note in the ESV. You might struggle with that word evil. There's a note in the bottom of my Bible, a little number one, that points us to the replacement word for evil is disaster. It can also be interpreted calamity. Shall we accept good from God and not only calamity or disaster? In this passage, in verses 9 and 10, we see the, 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 the catastrophe sort of continue. And at this point, there's the added catastrophe when those who are close to you are no encouragement at all. 
you might be able to relate to that at times when you've really been hurting and those close to you have not really been a help. And here we see, look, his wife goading him really to give in to Satan. She says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? You still hold fast to your innocence, your blamelessness? Do you still hold fast that you're unblemished in this whole mess? Why don't you go ahead and curse God and die? Job's wife at this point serves as an agent of Satan to do exactly what Satan said he'd do when he lost everything. I want you to pay attention to what's going on right here because we're about to go to the book of Genesis Here we have a wife enticing her husband with giving in to Satan's temptation. I hope that sounds familiar to you. A wife enticing her husband, take and eat. Job's response is beautiful. He says, wife, you are speaking like a fool, is essentially what he says. Wife, you are speaking like one of the foolish women, like one who doesn't know much about the skill of living with God. Wife, that's how you're speaking. She's speaking like one who has no fear of God. She's speaking like one who is very short-sighted and can't see beyond the boils, beyond the loss, beyond the difficulty, beyond the struggle. She is indeed short-sighted and does not fear Lord. And Job, on the other hand, says, Shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil and disaster and calamity? Crosspoint, fellowship, and people of God. This is wisdom. This is wisdom right here to see this. Even the, ver- the next verse tells us as much that this was wise. In all this, it says, Job did not sin with his lips. He did not mischaracterize God here in saying we can accept good from him and also calamity. This is a quality, sin-free response from Job. And this gives us some insight into the skill of living with God like wise sons of God. God ordains or allows all things, or he's not God at all. Now, I want to try and help you make sense of Job, and then together we're going to try and make sense of God okay, and how he moves. Okay, let's first of all start with Job. You can turn over to the book of Genesis chapter 1. I'm not going to be reading a large chunk. I'll be reading a section of Genesis chapter 2, but you'll be able to look along in chapter 1. I think there, uh, hopefully there's enough exposure to the creation account to where you won't have to uh, see large chunks of Scripture read. As you're turning there, I want to just introduce this thought to you. Um, There is a wonderful and I I would say even miraculous synthesis to God's Word. Okay, I really enjoy when I see dots and when we together see dots connect from the, the, the ends of God's word, from things that are thousands of years apart, writers that are totally different contexts where you see this integrity and this synthesis of a big story. Paul did something in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and also in Romans where he referred to Adam and he presents the notion of Adam being sort of a type Uh, or Christ being a type of Adam. He introduces Adam as the old man and then Christ as the new and better Adam. It's a concept that's interesting. I think it helps us see. Paul introduces the thought of a synthesis between even the creation story and the first man and woman and this new and better Adam and making sense of Christ through what Adam lost, Christ won back. It's a beautiful 
thing. But it opens the door for us to go in our Bible and look in our Bible and look for other places where we can see Christ. We do that often. I hope you notice that. The types of Christ that we connect to. And we're going to see in Job over the course of this book a type of Christ. One of the other things it does, though, it gives us room to go look for some other Adams in our Bible. A-D-A-M, Adams. And we find, I think you'll see in these next few minutes, in Job, a type of Adam. Okay, let's just look at a few of the data points from Adam. And they aren't, these aren't drawn direct from the passages that I'm going to read to you, but they're part of, their, part of his story. Job had been fruitful and multiplied. He, in many ways, was living out the cultural mandate that was given in Genesis chapter 2. He was fulfilling the cultural mandate. He had seven sons and three daughters. He was, in fact, being fruitful and multiplying. He'd also been given dominion over lots of critters. I mean, we see the the list of the critters over there in Job. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys. Okay, so far we can just see this guy's, first of all, living out the command that was given to Adam and Eve, the cultural mandate. He's being fruitful and multiplying. And he's been given dominion over lots of animals. He's also presented as the finest son of the East. And the East should point us, if we're thinking about connecting dots, should point us back to Eden, which Genesis account tells us was in the East. Adam, too, was called a son of God. So we can think about sonship and think about those words that sort of connect where Adam in the genealogy of Christ is listed as a son of God, where we can think, okay, maybe there's a connection there. This is a strong one here. In this case, we even have an Eve in the book of Job, an Eve that tempts him with a bite of forbidden fruit. We have an Eve that suggests that you should go ahead and give in to Satan, curse God and die. Don't hold fast to your integrity any longer. Some little images there that give us a sense that maybe we could look at Job as a kind of Adam. But here's the cool thing about Job that differentiates Job from Adam. Job, unlike the first Adam, moves as a new and better Adam. Maybe we could call him an intermediate Adam, holding fast to his integrity when he's tempted, unlike the first Adam. He, unlike the first one, does not curse God and die when he's tempted and take and eat. It's almost like through these little details, we've been invited into the creation story to view Job through the lens of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Making sense of Job via the creation story and the fall of man gives us a whole new way to sort of interpret the rest of the book. And that's where I want to go next. We're going to try and make sense of God's movement in Job through what he did in the creation week. Okay, now, this is the, I'll I'll just share with you too. I I know at this point in the sermon, it's probably felt a little bit like a Bible study and I can kind of see some drooping eyes. And so I want you to like really wake up. This is something, this little next part of the sermon is something I've been excited about for months when since we taught the youth is like I could not wait to bring this to God's people because this is really a delightful view into how God moves. I'm making the argument last week and the weeks prior and again this morning that God is doing what he does in Job because he's doing what he did in Genesis. God is doing what he does in Job because he's doing exactly what he did in Genesis. Okay, now here's where I'm going with this. Genesis chapter 1. After each day of creation, okay, after each day of creation except for the second day, or during creation, at some point, God pronounces each of these days good. 
Okay, that probably sounds familiar. You can look at the passage and look down the page there at chapter 1, verse 4. God said, let there be light. And he saw the light and he said it was good. Okay, it's a familiar theme in the creation week. The only day you don't see the pronouncement of goodness at some point of the portion of the day is where the waters are separated above from the waters that are separated below. Some people believe that that's because he's going to undo that in a worldwide flood later. We don't know that for sure, but it's the only day that's not pronounced good. We don't need to make too much of that because there is a theme here. On day three, in verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. Look down at verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 18, the rule over the day and night. He creates the sun, moon, and stars. The rule over the day and night to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. And then on the fifth day in verse 21, he created the great sea creatures, every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. That's day five. And I'm going to include kind of a day five and a half down in verse 25. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Okay, now let me just kind of help you with what good means or what good doesn't mean. Let me just clarify what good doesn't mean. Good doesn't mean finished. Because he's not finished on each of those days. I think you would agree. we got day one where he says light is good. Or day two where he declares these things he's made good. It's not finished. He's not done. And it's not until day six where he creates man. If you look down in verse 21. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. The sixth day. Each of these days he qualifies as good, but it's not till the work is completely finished that he calls it very good. I like to present the idea to just consider that what God may be up to in Job's life is making good stuff very good stuff. That that's what God is in the business of doing. That God is doing over there in Job exactly what God does over there in Genesis. He's about the work of making good stuff that's yet incomplete. Very good stuff that now is complete. Over the course of creation week, he's slicing and dicing. He's dividing, he's sorting, he's separating this from separating that. He's cleaving and cutting and piling up all week long until good stuff on the sixth day is finally called very good. I think it's really cool, but here's what's even cooler than that. Here's a better case for where I'm going with this good to very good notion. I want you to zoom in on the second day. You can, or, uh, excuse me, zoom in in chapter 2 on the sixth day because that's what happens in chapter 2. You get sort of a micro version of the sixth day of creation and a micro version of the story of the creation of man. Let's zoom in on the sixth day in chapter 2, picking up with verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Let's establish that at least part of the way through day six, a God who's been declaring everything is good 
declares something not good. Okay, can you see that? Anybody that's ever been alone, we can agree with that. Okay, anybody that before you're married, Christy and I are dating for five years, and the whole time I'm saying it is not good for man to be alone. You can identify with that not good. Let's see what happens next. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to all birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. It's not good. He's got lots of critters. I mean, I love dogs. Uh, they're great. Cats even. I have a whole new place for cats. I have some room for them. I can appreciate critters, but they're not a good replacement for a counterpart that's a human being, for someone who's made corresponding to you. It was still not good. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, the first spoken words, the first recorded, we should say, spoken words in our Bibles are love poetry, and they're pretty exclamatory. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You almost get the sense that he's including in there. We don't hear him say it, but we might get the sense that he's actually saying, this is very good. It was not good before. But this is very good. We can just ask Adam. He sounds pretty happy. But I want you to think for a moment about how we got there. There's the naming of the critters. You know, that would be a long day. I can't imagine what that day was like as he's all these animals are walking before him. He's like, that's kind of cool. I'm naming that, naming this, name this, that. But he's still feeling like this is not very good. Just consider what it took to make it very good. What did God do? He ripped Adam open. I want you to think about that for a minute. He ripped Adam open. What did God do to take something that was not good and make it very good? He ripped him open and he ripped out a rib. Christy and I and the kids were camping in DeGray Lake out in Arkansas a few years back. And we were leaving a site early. I don't know why. It was like... In the, Bedtime. We were like, man, it's raining, it's nasty, let's leave. So we're hiking out or carrying our stuff out to the car, and I walk, I'm walking down these steps uh, that are covered with moss, and my feet slipped out from under me, and I hit kind of on the back of my back and broke a rib. I didn't hear a snap or anything like that, but I could tell because it was months where I was in pain and agony from a broken rib. I don't know how much, I don't know how much force was actually exerted in that fall, but according to my research, it takes about 3,300 newtons of force to have a 25% chance of breaking a rib. Okay, if you're like me, you're like newtons are something you eat. I don't really know what measure of unit of measure that is. Some of the, the, the engineers in here know exactly what I'm talking about. A newton is the force required to accelerate one kilogram, which is 2.2 pounds, at a rate of one meter per second squared. Okay, that may not help you at all either. Let me see if I can help you with this. It'll give you kind of a, a pound image. You know, the, the guys in here that are, are into that kind of stuff, that hopefully no physics guys will be injured in this explanation. I'm just going to do my best to explain this. About 741 pounds of force need to be applied for a 25% chance of breaking a rib. 
Suffice it to say, whether you get Newtons or not, whether you get that illustration or not, it takes a lot of force to break a rib. Man, God opened Adam up. It took a broken rib to get from good to very good. Can we at least acknowledge that? Consider this, too, that opening up Adam and ripping out a rib would be bloody, would be gruesome. We read these pages, and they're so sanitary. They're they're just white and black. They're just words on a page. But can we really kind of climb into the story and believe that we might be some literal details that we can connect to here, some things that actually probably went down, that there's probably blood coursing through Adam's veins, that though we have the best surgeon in history dealing with Adam and doing the surgery, we could still expect that it's going to be kind of gruesome ripping a guy open and ripping a rib out. I imagine that Adam had a scar to go with his absence of belly button, right? I don't know for sure, but I know for sure there weren't any plastic surgeons at that point. I wonder if there was a recovery period after having a rib ripped out of your body. It took me a couple of months to recover from a broken rib. I can't imagine that Adam, as he's celebrating, yes, you've given me a woman where he's like uh, smarting at the same time. Yes, oh, at last. She's awesome, but oof. Man, that hurts. But God was doing something awesome in this gruesome work. God was taking something that was good, Adam, and making it very good. And to be really technical, not good, Adam, and making it very good with Adam and Eve. That might be my next wedding sermon because that travels for the married guys in this room and the married folk in this room. You'd have to agree. That's very good. We don't see the very good of Job's story yet. We hadn't gotten there, but we can trust that it's coming because we can trust that we're dealing with a God that takes good things and makes them very good, but oftentimes through ripping someone open. Job's story is unfinished at this point, but we can trust that the very good is coming. In the meantime, we see Job sitting in the ashes from the earth from which he came. He's lost it all. He's fallen to the earth. And here he sits, ripped open, having lost everything. But we can trust his God because his God is our God. We can trust that he is taking something that's good and he's making it very good. Now, I'll just share with you a few little application points that I think travel that are helpful. Three things that I think God may be up to uh, as, we're go- as he's going about the work of making good things very good in our lives through difficult, maybe, circumstances. First of all, this is a lob. It's right here in front of us. It's what's developed for the morning. He's transforming us from good and unfinished, we could say, to very good and finished and ready for eternity with him. Okay? Can we can trust that God is about the work of taking good things and making them very good and that that would include us. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like, or you can just listen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this about his struggles and his trials that he's gone through. We could import Job's stories into this sort of New Testament version of Job, where the guy's been beaten, he's been imprisoned, he's been shipwrecked, he spent nights hungry and cold. And here's what he says. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Sounds like Paul sitting in ashes. Sounds like Paul ripped open 
And he says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that, that affliction is what that points back to. That affliction was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, Paul in some ways saying, I was unfinished in those trials. But he's finishing me. He's taking a good thing and he's making it very good by teaching us to rely on God and not ourselves. Man, that'll travel. And here's the third thing. Just a few pages over in chapter 3 of the same book. Chapter 3 is speaking of the Old Covenant, uh, contrasting the response to the Old Covenant and the Jews and being veiled and not seeing the glory of God in contrast with those who are actually seeing the glory of God with unveiled faces. Look at chapter 3, verse 18, or listen. And we all, those walking in the New Covenant, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I believe with everything in me that what God is doing through these trials and struggles that we go through is he's making good, very good, that he is transforming us from one degree of glory to the next as we behold him through these trials. That's a good God that blesses us through our struggles with something that is meaningful, something that is good, and something that will travel into eternity. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you are purposeful. God, we are thankful that you are intentional with struggles and trials and difficulties. God, we are thankful that they're just not meaningless things where we need to look for blame or we need to consider bad luck. But, Lord, that we can actually look at those things through the lens of a God that is about the work of taking good things that are unfinished and making them very good things that are finished. Lord, I pray for all of us in this room because I know we all go through some version of these struggles and trials, these things we might call innocent trials that are not of our own making. Lord, I pray that we all can see a good God behind those things, that we can trust you in those trials. And Lord, I do pray that the outcome of that will be that we are salty, that we are bright, and we are aromatic in our workplaces, in our relationships, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our context. Lord, I pray that we, unlike the world, will not use language like bad luck, will not walk in hopelessness, but that we can walk in purpose, recognizing that you are doing something with us, transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. Lord, we are thankful. We trust you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's distribute the elements.